2: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join
0: the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, happy opening day. Minor League Baseball returns in 2017, kind of. Might as well. Let's just embrace it. It's opening day.
1: Yeah, no, right. That's that's the same thing. Like I, I wrote a column thing. this week where it, it was, uh, you know, baseball is back. Didn't really feel like it went away, but it, it's technically back <laughs> for those of us who are spending all of our time, you know, talking about minor league baseball. This yeah. is this is the return of baseball after a brief hiatus.
0: Exactly, which is you know that's uh that's a big thing for those of us who are obviously <laughs> very badly in need of it. Um, but less than three weeks. After the conclusion of the minor league baseball season, the Arizona Fall League season has opened play for 2017. And with that, we welcome you into the latest edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. I am Tyler Mond. He is Sam Dykser. We're going to talk a whole ton of AFL today. Uh, the season opening last night, we're recording on Wednesday season got started on Tuesday. There is a lot of talent on all of these rosters. We'll look at some of that, look at some people who may surprise you, some people who might have big seasons coming up in 2017 in the AFL. You know, the other night it comes so perfectly into focus. When you watch something like Game 3 of the National League Division Series, see Cody Bellinger go off and remember – Oh yeah, last November, he was on this podcast as an AFL prospect. That's how close some of these guys are. So keep some of these names in mind, because maybe in 2018, you'll be watching them steal the show in a Major League Baseball playoff game. But before we dive into this week's episode, thanks for tuning into the show before the show from MILB.com, wherever you found us at MILB.com slash podcast or iTunes or Google Play or the Stitcher app, wherever you found us. We appreciate it, and you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. I checked the other day, 35 ratings on iTunes were still a perfect five-star, Sam. There
1: we go. I would pretty, love to get that bumped pumped. up. I would love to get that bumped up to 40. If yeah, could. let's get it to 40. Let's yeah. get
0: five of you tuned in. We've got thousands of people every week, five of you Go give us a go give us a five star rating. Uh, yeah. The ratings are actually broken for anything other than five stars. You can't even do it. So if you were going to, <laughs> just don't bother. But if you're going to go give us five, that works still. Yeah, that's fine. That's always acceptable. The five star button is not right. broken. Just in case you're wondering. Um. So, with that, let's get started. Three strikes. We are all AFL this week, and we will get it rolling with a uh, look at some of these rosters in the Arizona Fall League. For those unfamiliar, we hear so often from people who just got kind of turned on to the show before the show, haven't really followed the minor leagues, don't know a lot of the specifics about how exactly some of these ancillary things in minor league baseball work the Arizona Fall League is a showcase circuit for some of the top prospects in minor league baseball some guys who are coming into contract years in which teams are maybe showcasing them for other organizations whether they'd be eligible for the Rule 5 draft whether they're going to be upcoming minor league free agents maybe trade pieces that type of stuff guys who are at kind of crossover points in their careers crossroad points in their careers um or Just some of the best talent out there. Six teams in the AFL. All of them have five major league affiliates. Not quote-unquote parent clubs, but basically it functions that way. Five teams send prospects to each one of these six AFL teams, and that's how these are comprised. They play uh, about a seven-week season uh, in Arizona, in the Phoenix metro area, at spring training facilities all around. And there are some really, really stacked rosters this year, and that's where we're going to get started. The best roster... In the Arizona Fall League, the best team for 2017, Sam, for people who are going down, want to watch, want to see the best squad out there, who is it?
1: Yeah, so uh, this week's Tool Shed, or this tool, Tuesday's Tool Shed, kind of broke down the uh, Arizona Fall League roster rankings for now, just based on you know roster construction and the whole thing. A- at the number one spot, uh, to answer your question directly, Tyler, I had Peoria, uh, which is made up of Braves, Red Sox, Padres, Mariners, and Blue Jays. Prospects. Uh, They have the most top 100 prospects uh, with Michael Chavis, Luis Urias, uh, Ronald Acuna, and Kyle Lewis all on that squad. That lineup should be absolutely stacked um, because all of those guys, obviously, are are position player prospects. Because of the the way the AFL works, it's unlikely all four are going to be in the game at the same time. Um, Although, if they are, that's one star studded lineup considering, you know, hat. You know, four out of nine starters have the chance to be top 100 guys, which is kind of insane. Um, any team that's going to have Acuna on it obviously is is going to be a must-watch team. The fact that he's surrounded by impressive bats makes it all the better. Um, Chavis trying to build build off his 30-plus homer season this year at Double A Portland, Portland and Class A Van Salem. Uh, Urias, I'm really interested to see because he's basically been a 300 hitter anywhere he goes, um, but he's also been young for every level he's been at. I think now he'll be you know, around guys who, are, who have been at A for just a little bit. Sometimes Some of them have started at, out the year at Class A Advanced, like Acuna, like Chavis. Um, so what happens when he's kind of age-appropriate for a level? What does that mean for him? Um, I think he can certainly take off with the bat there. Uh, Kyle Lewis, I, I think Tyler's going to get into him a little bit later, so I'll kind of leave that be. But other guys in that lineup that will just be insane. Austin Riley, who had a really strong second half, at double a mississippi after getting a bump there uh eric filia uh, mariners outfielder who hit 326 with a crazy 45 to 65 strikeout to walk ratio in the california league uh lourdes guriel who you know signed a seven-year 22 million dollar deal out of cuba with the blue jays um, and this yes, will be his biggest stage the what? younger
0: brother of yuli guriel in case you've right. been watching the astros in the playoffs and you wondered he is the younger brother
1: Right. So that's a very talented family. This is going to be the biggest stage yet of his career. How is he going to respond? Just so much fun, no matter who is going to be in that lineup on any given day. I think Peoria is going to be one you're going to want to watch. And then I say that. And then yesterday, uh, the pitching staff um, started by Max Fried and Tuki Toussaint. Uh, the, those were the. Freed got the start. Toussaint was the first guy out of the bullpen for Peoria. As a staff, they struck out 16 batters, I think, Uh, or at least four Braves prospects combined to strike out 16 batters. So don't forget about the arms either on that team. Uh, Second, I have Glendale. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of this, obviously, but uh, Glendale, they have the best pitching prospect in the AFL this year in Mitch Keller. He got a start today, started out with three scoreless innings, struck out four in that span, looked really good. A good way for him to make up for some lost time this year. And, uh, you know, obviously he has the stuff to really take off in in shorter stints. But, um, you know, being the top prospect in the AFL, which there aren't really that many top pitching prospects there this year. Uh, I think it's just him and Justice Sheffield of the Yankees who are top 100 guys in Arizona uh, this fall. Um, So, you know, Glendale certainly gets to be the beneficiary of that, getting Keller uh, but beyond him, they have what might be the most interesting fall league storyline from my perspective, uh, which is that Francisco Mejia, normally a catcher, has caught at every level so far in the Indian system. Obviously, we know his bat uh, can be special. Uh, I think he he was your pick, Tyler, as the you know all milb catcher of the year. Uh, he did play one game at third base with Double A Akron, then moved up to Cleveland, uh, got some looks there because he was on the 40 man entering the year. He is heading to the fall league strictly to play third base. Um, you know they want to get some ple- positional flexibility with him. How is that going to kind of work out? Uh, you know he certainly has the arm for third. That's not a worry. Um, but obviously it's a different scenario when you're, um, yeah, different reaction times, different all that kind of different viewpoints. You're not calling the game anymore. Uh, you don't have to worry about framing, which you know was, was a, a worry for him uh, in the past. So really, going to be looking at what that means for him, and you know how does that help him fit into Cleveland's plans going forward? Obviously, they're competing really well right now. They're going into Game Five. By the time you hear this, they may be eliminated by the Yankees, but still, two consecutive playoff runs for them. Um, you know, and two really promising years. They want to keep that going. So, how does Mejia fit in? We'll find out about that this fall. Uh, but also in that lineup, using Diaz from the. The Dodgers, Bobby Bradley, also of the Indians, a, a really uh, big slugger at first base. DJ Peters, the reigning Cal League MVP. Uh, how will he take to a really hitter-friendly environment in Arizona? That should be a lot of fun. Kevin Kramer, who I featured in Toolshed a couple of weeks ago, uh, seemed to really take off with his own power as a middle infielder in the Pirates system and then you know suffered an injury that, that kept him out for most of the year. He came back just in time to help Altoona uh, go for an, an Eastern League title. So that was a good way to end his season, Um, but he's going to be making up for lost at bats and missed time in the field uh, between shortstop and second base in the AFL as well. So if there are two teams I'm going to be really looking at hard this year, uh, it is Peoria and Glendale. And overall, you know, there might not be the top talent that I think there has been in other years, uh, but that just means more of a learning opportunity, not only for us, but for everybody listening and watching and, um, you know, following the AFL this year, there might not be top guys, you know, but there might be some that really take a hold, you know, of the situation, you know, AFL is, is a microscope league, you know, everybody that's playing there, um, you know, they're going to be put on a a little bit of a pedestal. They're going to be playing at a time, especially at the end of October into November when major league baseball isn't going on anymore. Uh, More eyes can be on them. They're the only game in town quite literally uh you know who's gonna to take that take advantage of that and maybe become a top 100 prospect uh going into the offseason or become a bigger part of their major league plans or become a big part in a a trade whatever uh this is a big opportunity for a lot of guys and some of which you know aren't big names yet can certainly become ones because of the uh opportunity afforded them uh here in the next six weeks or so
0: yeah that was kind of talking about you know High-level talent guys, guys that are maybe being showcased for other organizations. The other thing, guys making position changes, that's a big component of the AFL too, or Guys at least trying to get exposure and experience at other positions, so something to keep in mind, uh, you know, in a circumstance like Sam described. And there is uh, one interesting thing about that really, really talented Peoria roster that Sam pointed out in his Toolshed preview of this year's AFL. Two catchers on that roster, Alex Jackson and Max Pentecost, who were both taken in the top 11 picks in 2014, number six and number 11 overall. Those guys are both on that roster, and those are both guys that people have been waiting for a while now to see if they're going to turn into anything, uh, at least at the catching position, that could resemble a very effective major leaguer, the hopes that came along with them when they were drafted. So that's going to be an interesting wrinkle on that roster as well. Um, Strike two, Sam. Last year, we saw Gleyber Torres dominate the league. Every year, it seems like there is one guy who just blows up in the AFL, somebody who was already talented and highly regarded going in, but for whatever reason, playing against really good competition is able to te- take even that next step. Your most valuable player pick for the AFL in 2017 is who?
1: Actually, before I give my pick, I guess to kind of extend the, uh, the drama here a little bit, I do want to go through, you know, previous AFL MVPs, at least in recent memory. Uh, you brought up Torres, obviously had a great year in 2016, took the MVP award, you know, is now in the conversation for top overall prospect in the game, certainly carried that forward to the beginning of this year in 2017 before Tommy John surgery. Um, but there is a little bit of a history here. So you mentioned Torres, Adam Engel was the AFL MVP in 2015. Uh, he was known as primarily a defensive center fielder with tons of speed. Uh, I believe his Twitter handle is still Man of Steel. Steel S-T-A-L, which is one of my favorite Twitter handles on that service. Um, But he took off with the bat there. Uh, Obviously regressed a little bit back in the minors. But he's, you know, he got significant major league time this year. There's no doubting that. Uh, Greg Bird was the MVP in 2014. Chris Bryant, you may have heard of him, MVP in 2013. And in 2011, it was Nolan Arenado. So some of the game's biggest stars have won Uh, or, you know, some of the biggest stars or the next big star in Torres have won the AFL MVP. So this does mean something. Um, And and with that kind of in mind, my pick is is Chris Shaw of the San Francisco Giants. Uh, You know, he's a top five prospect in that system, uh, a system that's a little bit down right now, uh, as as is the major league team. Obviously, they did not have a a great year there um, finishing at the bottom of the NL West. But... Shaw seems like particularly geared to do well in the fall league. The only reason he's there is because he was drafted as a first baseman, uh, used primarily as a first baseman in his first two seasons in the minors. This year, the Giants moved him to left field. Uh, Left field was obviously a big hole in San Francisco. Um, Shaw's bat looked major league ready by the end. Uh, He got in 88 games this year at AAA Sacramento, uh, hit 289, 328, 530 uh, in the PCL, hit 18 homers in those 88 games between Sacramento and double A Richmond, where he started the year, he hit 24 home runs, which was a new career high, um, trumping the 21 he hit in his first full season in 2016. Um, so this is a guy who's tracking, you know, projecting well with his power. Uh, people thought he was gonna be a, a plus power hitter when he was drafted out of Boston College in the first round in 2015, certainly showing that potential. Um, the fact that his bat is probably major league ready, it means he's coming, you know, to the fold with more experience than some of these other AFL guys. You know, you, your Acunas who, who just reached double A, your Chavises who haven't even seen triple A yet and, you know, going down the line. Uh, most of these guys haven't even seen that level of competition yet, never mind played 88 games there. Uh, so the fact that Shaw has gotten that level of experience and that level of success certainly points well in his direction. Uh, the AFL is certainly a hitters league. It's certainly a power hitters league. Um, you know, mentioning Bryant and Arenado the way they, they took off bird, the way he took off there in 2014. Um, so he seems uniquely positioned to do well here. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think his play in left field, uh, will necessarily affect, His potential to win this award. I think he he can certainly put up some really, really big numbers here and take that next step. He was certainly trending this direction as well. He he looked better in August than he did in July uh, back in Sacramento. Um, In in terms of why I'm picking him, there's certain, you know, Mitch Keller might be on the list just because I think he can put up some really dominating numbers, Uh, but no AFL pitcher has won the MVP award since Tommy Hansen in 2008. Uh, It's just, tough to get enough innings with there being so many pitchers so many guys trying to you know work their way uh or trying to get their amount of work um you know you look at these pitching staffs they are rather big um it's tough for for pitchers to get enough work to make this award a viable option for them um so you're definitely going to be looking at a slugger who's going to take that and i think shaw kind of fits that mold really well the
0: uh, the guy who I'm going to take is somebody who we've talked about on the show a lot, and that's Kyle Tucker, the prospect in the Houston Astros organization, the outfielder who finished the year with A Corpus Christi. And Kyle Tucker has just been one of those guys who has excelled at every single level where we've seen him so far. He started the year this past season with Class A Advanced Bowie's Creek, 48 games there and 932 OPS, nine homers, 43 driven in. Then he jumps up to A Corpus Christi in the Texas League. 72 games there 16 homers 47 driven in The OPS is 837 and just seems like one of those prospects elite level prospects get better as they climb the ladder in the minor leagues which seems oftentimes counterintuitive because that's always supposed to get more difficult but guys For whatever reason, some of the best talent gets better when facing other talent that is similar in stature. And Kyle Tucker, to me, feels like the type of guy who could really break out uh, in a a competitive environment like this. He's a member of the Mesa Solar Sox organization, which features prospects in addition to the Astros from the Cubs, Tigers, A's, and Nationals. Um, I really like him. Kyle Tucker has that full profile and is a guy who I think – This coming season, we're really going to start seeing as one of the elite prospects. That system, it's so easy to get overshadowed, um, and he's the top prospect in that system. And still, you hear about other guys sometimes even more than you hear about Kyle Tucker because Forrest Whitley is so promising as a young guy. We've heard about Derek Fisher for so long. These guys who have been higher in the organization, higher in the system, now making impacts at the major league level, it seems odd to say But Kyle Tucker, in some ways, I think flies a little bit under the radar just because of how much talent has come out of that system in recent years. You start thinking to yourself, like, what could the Astros possibly have left? They have somebody like him. That's a blue-chip guy. Um, I really like Kyle Tucker as a a prospect. He's number seven overall in MLB.com's rankings uh, coming out of the 2017 minor league season. And, I don't know, going into the AFL, sometimes you just get a feel for who is going to be – successful and who may have an uphill slog. And uh Tucker just feels like one of those guys who could really put his name out there even more than it already is.
1: Yeah, and what what I like about Tucker is you know he's got the power potential and the speed potential. Um and, and the idea that he can maybe hit you know 10 home runs while he's down there and steal 10 bases is certainly right. going to look good for an MVP profile. Um, but th- I think the other thing he has going for him is just before opening night, uh, Victor Robles of the Washington Nationals was supposed to be on that team with him, on that Mesa team, and he is still with the Nationals. He was on the a- the uh, NLDS roster, um, so obviously he's not going to be in Arizona. They took him off the roster. Uh, the Nats have said there's a chance he could head down there eventually, um, but obviously he's not going to be there for the start of the year. They'll see how deep they go in the postseason, yada, yada, yada. Uh so by the time you hear this, you know, the Cubs-Nats game is playing, being played right now. The Nats season might be over by the time you hear this. We could hear he's going there this weekend, whatever. But, uh, you know, if they do make a deep run, Tucker won't be overshadowed by Robles. Uh, They're both center fielders right now. They're both going to try to get time in center field. And obviously they can move around to the other spots as well. Um, but the fact that Tucker is now the guy on that team as opposed to being a guy next to Victor Robles, uh Certainly helps his case in some, you know, in the award discussion or just the the limelight discussion that he'll get in the fall. League.
0: That is a really, really talented outfield group from Mesa, Um, and those are uh, some of the names to keep an eye on for possible huge 2017 AFL campaigns. The AFL also oftentimes provides an opportunity for guys to come out of nowhere and put themselves on the map in ways in which maybe prospect people have not seen them before, and it's also – an avenue for guys to rebound, guys who have had struggles, whether it be through just ineffectiveness or injury or what have you. Um Sam, who is somebody that you're looking at as a prospect who could surprise people in 2017 for strike three?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two names. Um uh, one w- very quickly, um while we're talking about that Mesa outfield, uh when you know the Nats announced that Victor Robles wasn't going to be going to the AFL, they announced his replacement was going to be Daniel Johnson. Uh, who had a stellar first year this year? You know, with with uh, the national or in the national system, you know, he was coming out of New Mexico State. There are thoughts that you know he could be. He's you know got top of the line speed. He's got a really good arm. Uh, he could be a plus center fielder at the very least. He's going to profile and right, uh, but kind of be a light hitter. You know, how is that going to kind of figure itself out? He actually hit 22 home runs this year between Class A Hagerstown and Class A Advanced Potomac, stole 22 bases. So he was part of that illustrious 2020 club, uh, which you know had a lot of really good players in it this year. And, you know, this is his chance. Yeah, you know, they started him out at Class A Hagerstown, uh, which for a college guy isn't exactly an aggressive assignment. And He certainly took to it hitting 300 there with 17 homers in 88 games. Um, But that's, you know, a note we have to have on his profile is that he dominated lower competition. If he can hit a bunch of homers, steal a bunch of bases, do everything what he did in the South Atlantic League and Carolina League this year in the Arizona Fall League, you're going to see his stock climb even higher. Uh, Even if it's, you know, for a short six week span, you know, he has a real opportunity to show the numbers he put up this year were real. They were not just a product of, you know, non-aggressive assignments, passive assignments. Uh, and the, the, the idea that his power is real now and all that kind of stuff. It's a real chance for him. The other one I'm going to offer, who I, I think we, nobody has really talked enough about, is Andrew Knizner, uh, who is going to be on that surprise team uh, out of the St. Louis Cardinals system. He was a seventh-round pick last year out of NC State. Uh, really took to both aspects of the game. He's a catcher, uh, but he hit 302 this year with an 820 OPS, 12 homers in 95 games. That's fantastic. Obviously, uh you would like that out of any position player, but the fact that it comes as a catcher for him is really, really good. He did he put up those numbers at Class A Peoria and then skipped a level, jumped to double A Springfield, actually hit better at Springfield than he did in Peoria, hitting 324 with an eight thirty-three OPS in fifty-one games there. So he seems primed to to do well offensively in the folly. But not only that, he threw out forty five point one percent of attempted base dealers this year between those two levels, which is a crazy good number. So he's, he's rounded himself into a really good all around catcher. Uh, the, the Cardinals already have one of those, you know, in their system, it's still considered a prospect in Carson Kelly. Knisner could be that next guy. He could be on a faster track than Kelly. Kelly moved from third base to catcher. Knisner's a little bit more of a uh, natural, you know, catcher, um, but the fact that he performed so well in those two aspects, uh, you know, the scouting reports, obviously, like I said, he was a seventh-round pick last year. So a lot of teams didn't see that much out of him. Um, but, you know, this is how you put yourself on the map, and if he can carry this to the fall league, you know, these, these are your type of performances in which we're talking about a top-ten catcher in the minors, never mind, you know, a, a good catcher in a system. He has a chance to become a really uh a a guy a capital g guy uh if he can carry this to to seeing some more advanced arms and and the way he performed at double a certainly points us in the direction of thinking that he can do so um so i'm going to be excited to see what happens to him over the next six weeks
0: I'm uh, selfishly going to go with a guy who uh, I'm profiling for my first AFL story of the year, and that's Kyle Lewis, who is the outfielder in the Seattle Mariners organization and has been really good when he's been on the field, just hasn't been on the field as much as anybody would have liked so far, sustained a really, really awful knee injury in 2016 late in his debut season. He played 30 games for Everett that year and then tore some ligaments on a slide into the plate. Surgery to repair those, but then this year was limited. Soreness, later on a bruise in that same leg that he suffered in his first game back after the injury. Ended up in 2017 only playing 49 combined games uh, between Class A Advanced Modesto and rookie level, uh, the rookie-level AZL Mariners when he was coming back from the injury. But the ceiling is extraordinarily high for Kyle Lewis. He's the top prospect in that system, taken out of Mercer University in 2016. He was the Golden Spikes Award winner as the top collegiate player, a guy with a really, really – Diverse profile. I mean, every grade across the board for him is 50 to 60. He's got major league plus tools, it seems like, in almost every category. And what the AFL does is it gives guys a chance who have not gotten innings to do some makeup work and get themselves ready for the following season. So for Kyle Lewis, it's only been 49 games played this year, only 79 games played so far in his minor league career. But Go out. You're kind of in an advanced level. Uh, you're, you know, sort of cramming things in um, in a, a more challenging environment. To borrow a kind of an academic comparison, and that can help you in in the long run get ready for a season that follows. So, for somebody like that coming off an injury, I feel like being healthy and ready to go Kyle Lewis is going to be a scary guy to contend with. And still all the time in the world, he's only 22. He's just over a year out of the draft. Um, and you hope that the knee injury is something that's behind him, but put together a good AFL, put together an off season full of rest and getting better for 2018. And I think next year really stacks up pretty well for him.
1: Yeah, no, he's definitely falling under that category of, you know, this being a chance to show that he, a that he's healthy and that he can really produce again. Um, I am very excited to see what happens to him. i I'd like nothing more, you know production aside just to see him be healthy for the whole thing. Um, on paper, that doesn't seem to to be asking for much to be healthy for six weeks. and you know there were six weeks this se- season where he was definitely healthy. but just for his confidence to know he started a season and ended a season, even if it's the fall league, um, you know, even if it's an abbreviated season, still yeah, means that's something. A good point. For, for guys going into their off season and all that, so yeah, that that's my number one wish for him is is health. But um, he's certainly falling a little bit off the radar just because he hasn't been on the field. Uh, so this is a chance for him to put himself firmly back on it.
0: 2017 Arizona Fall League preview. You can catch some games from the AFL coming up on MLB.com and on MLB Network um, as the postseason wraps up, of course, in Major League Baseball. So toward the, the first weeks of November, be on the lookout for that because AFL games are really, really fun to watch, really fun to attend if you're uh, in the Phoenix area or going to be in the Phoenix area over the next couple of months. And, uh, you know, if your team has some of its best talent down there, you're going to get a chance to see guys against much more Major League ish competition then you'll see them against at virtually any other stage of their minor league career so um the afl is a a really cool thing and it's something we have a lot of fun following every year and uh that wraps up our 2017 afl preview any closing thoughts sam nope no i was just
1: gonna say it it just always feels like an all-star game yeah exactly every game feels like that yeah following from afar it's just like oh i can't believe you know Daniel Johnson and Sheldon Noyce are in the, the same lineup. Like, that's crazy. That's awesome. I'm so excited for that. Or, you know, you know, I can't believe Ronald Acuna is hitting in front of Gurriel, and who's hitting in front of Chavis, who's hitting in front yeah. of Josh Naylor. Like, we don't get a chance to see that during the regular season outside of those random exhibitions in late June, early July. Uh, but this happens every day in the AFL.
0: It's fun. It is a lot of fun, and uh, you can check out, of course, scores and stats and so much more about the Arizona Fall League at MILB.com, and that will put a wrap on three strikes for this week's edition of the show. Coming up, we got a lot of news away from the field as well on the business side of things with Benjamin Hill, and Ben joins us next to break down what's going on around the world of minor league baseball as we head into the meat of the offseason in 2017. Ben's up next. Bringing in Benjamin Hills, we talk some business of baseball, some ballpark news, some affiliation news, um, stuff the uh, the off-season minor league hot stove on the business side kind of starting to to get rolling. Hi, Ben.
2: Hi, Tyler. Hi, Sam, who is sitting next to me, and Tyler, who is not sitting next to me.
0: Sadly, as always. Um, Well, Ben, we got some news yesterday that was um, not unexpected. We've been kind of expecting to hear something on this front for a little while, but kind of unexpected in some of the details the las vegas 51s are reportedly in 2019 going to be moving into a new ballpark for which the naming rights were agreed to at a price tag of 80 million dollars over 20 years with the las vegas convention and visitors authority um, ballpark will be located in the Summerlin neighborhood was a little bit west of downtown los angeles of, of las vegas um, but still it seems a lot of specifics left uncovered, but this looks like the next step for the Las Vegas 51s franchise, which has been in Cashman field for so long right now is kind of the, the one bringing up the rear is in terms of Pacific coast league ballparks. What all do we know about this situation right now?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, um, Yeah, Cashman Field opened uh, 36 years ago. ago. It is the oldest ballpark in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, I visited there in 2016. And, you know, what they say is true. It has its own charm, for sure. It's located kind of close to, uh, you know, old old Las Vegas off the Strip. Um, But it is a... Very out of time or out of step ballpark, especially in AAA right now. Um, definitely on the player development side, but even on the fan amenity side, um, you know, time has passed it by, and there's just been infrastructure issues with this ballpark. You know, some pretty unflattering stories through the years involving you know sewage problems and things like that. So it's been a priority within the PCL. You know, if you're talking on a, a league-wide to-do list, it's um, you know get a new ballpark in Vegas. Obviously, um, you don't want to lose Vegas as a market. It's a big market. It's a difficult market. Because there's so much to do there. You know, you often see teams struggle in markets in which there's uh, so much competition for the uh, entertainment dollar. But, um, you know, so this has been in the works for years. Uh, You know, one plan or another or this or that to try to build a more, you know, state of the art, appropriately, you know, Vegas style ballpark for the 51s. And it looks like we are now closer to this happening than uh, we ever have been uh, before with the deal you mentioned that was announced uh, yesterday. I'm talking on Wednesday, so on Tuesday. Uh, Kind of unorthodox that uh, the big chunk of the money is coming via a naming rights deal with the uh, Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority That previously used to manage Cashman field and you know, I'm still working out the details I don't quite understand how all these relationships uh, are working and uh, but it's gonna be an 80 million dollar naming rights deal 4 million a year which is gonna go a long way toward funding the uh, you know construction of this ballpark and, uh, you know, getting the pieces in place to make this a reality. The um, the team is owned by the Howard Hughes Corporation, which also, you know, it was Howard Hughes himself who uh, – um, Created essentially Summerlin, the neighborhood where the ballpark will be in. I don't know if you call it a neighborhood as much as a viable, you know, almost mini city area. in itself. It's a planned community. Howard Hughes bought the land in 1952. Um, now the um, population there is almost 100,000. It is uh, a very affluent area. And also the uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights, the new hockey team, has a practice facility there. So this would be part of a larger sort of sports complex area. So, you know, a lot's falling into place. And right now the play- Plan is to break ground early in 2018, uh, with the goal of opening in time for 2019. And uh, you know, it's always tough with these construction timelines. And you know, it's a, it's like writing a paper in college or something. No one starts ever seems to be able to start with uh, plenty of time to get it done. It's always uh, working to the last second. But we are uh, really looking toward 2018 right now. Is very potentially. Uh, being the last year at Cashman Field and ushering in certainly a uh, a new era of minor league baseball in Vegas. And, um, yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of moving parts here. I you just know did my I, best.
0: What I find really interesting about it is we hear about naming rights deals at every level of sports and every sport at college and professional, and sometimes you get these crazy, weird, wacky names or something that just sounds way too corporate. This is 20 years, $80 million, and it's going to be called Las Vegas Ballpark. Which just seems, yeah. you know, it gets the name out there. It's it's That was kind of the point was they wanted to ensure that Las Vegas was always going to be part of the team identity. But it just seems like you invest all this time, all this money – that's the name that most fans would just say yes what it should be called but it should just be called that you know what i mean it's just kind of we're not seeing it as like oh it's going to be papa john's ballpark at pepsi point or something like that like it's just very it comes down to being something very straightforward
2: after all this right and i think that speaks to the nature of vegas itself in which vegas is essentially a brand (laughs) and um you know and and this is the convention uh, convention and visitors authority saying you know what we want our brand is las vegas Uh, as i saw um one of the authority members uh, in one of the local papers said something like, "Our job is to get heads in beds, um, you know, filling up those hotel rooms, getting visitors, and they think something like this uh, is part of that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of space to fill in Vegas all the time in terms of getting people to visit, getting people to spend their money, giving people things to do, um, you know, not just for tourists but for the residents. And uh, Vegas is the brand itself. So you're right, Tyler. I, I can't come up with <laughs> any really applicable." Um, scenario uh, such as uh, this one that's falling into place, both with the amount of money involved for the naming rights deal and the fact that it's a decidedly non-corporate sounding name for sure. Um, Las Vegas Ballpark sounds like the name you'd give it until a naming rights deal right, is right, actually exactly. in place as opposed to the name that it's given because a naming rights deal was put in place that puts the whole project in motion and towards uh, a pretty viable reality at this point.
1: Well, just looking at the artist rendition of what the ballpark is going to look like, we have this on the site for anybody who wants to go check it out, but in the corner it has Las Vegas in like the Las Vegas font, which right, I don't right. know any other city that has like just a brand to it in the way Vegas does in terms of a, a logo, a style, uh, a, uh, you know, promotional campaign in the way that Vegas does. So that's probably what this is all going towards. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, you see just like in the commercials, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what have you. And you have the same font branded right there on the ballpark. Right. It's, it says, it is interesting. And, well, uh, Something else, just jumping in
0: real quick, Sam, that I think is really key to this for minor league baseball is for the last few years, you've looked at Vegas and you've seen, oh, they're getting an NHL team. They're getting the Oakland Raiders soon. And you kind of think to yourself, where does AAA baseball fit in the large scheme of things? This is a big win for, for the market, for minor league baseball, for the 51s franchise, because now you are a cornerstone of that community, the same way the Golden Knights, the same way the Raiders are, new facilities. I mean, it ushers in an entirely different era of entertainment in las vegas that's not just going booking a hotel room and gambling for a while now there are these other these sports options these professional sports options and the 51s aren't going to be an afterthought which i think is pretty cool too
2: yeah, it does. You know, hey, I don't want to get off on tangent upon tangent, but it also brings up the scenario though with Major League Baseball being rumored to possibly expand in Las Vegas being one right. of those markets. Uh, you know, then in that case, building a AAA stadium could be seen as counterproductive, because if you just sunk all this money into a AAA ballpark, it's even harder to justify uh, the expense that would be necessary to build a Major League ballpark. I don't know the specifics on that, but uh, certainly. Uh, that was one of the primary arguments in Charlotte against uh, building a AAA ballpark. And there was a particular individual, I believe his name was Jerry Reese, who continually sued um, for various reasons against that project happening, based, you know, predicated on the fact that we're a major league city now and we shouldn't be building a AAA ballpark. So um, you could definitely see some possible criticism here of why are you building a minor league stadium in what we consider now to be a major league town. But I'm probably getting ahead of myself.
1: Well, what I wanted to get to is this kind of pairs with the news that also came this week uh, since our last show, which was that, you know, the New York Mets currently have their AAA affiliate in Las Vegas through 2018. That's where their player development contract is up. They made news this week by announcing that they were purchasing or buying the uh, Syracuse Chiefs, and they will be moving there in 20- 2019, which leaves Vegas without a team for 2019. Uh, makes things a little awkward for this year coming up. Obviously, when the game of musical chairs is played with player development contracts, it always seems like Vegas is the last empty seat and whoever doesn't have a seat just has to, to move there, and that was the Mets case after they moved out of Buffalo. Um, but w- what kind of effect do you think this new stadium has on you know potentially this being a desirable location for, for teams looking for their AAA affiliate? Was it just Cashman Field that had that effect, or... Is it the idea of Vegas in general that usually left, you know, the 51s a little bit behind some of their other clubs?
2: I mean, I think from a player development standpoint, you could probably argue that maybe you don't want a team in Vegas for the quote-unquote distractions. But without a doubt, the reason that Las Vegas has been sort of – you know, the last one standing in the affiliation shuttle and a, um, a market that the teams reluctantly go to because they have no other options, such as the Mets case right now is because Cashman field is literally the worst stadium in the league. So with having a new ballpark, that's going to completely, you know, upturn, overturn the thinking about having Vegas as a A affiliate. I think if you have a brand new ballpark in this, you know, very affluent uh, part of town then all of a sudden you know major league organizations are going to look very differently at having a triple a team in vegas and it could be seen as a uh, possibly very favorable thing uh, particularly for a team on the west coast where there's you know, a lot more proximity because obviously uh, time is of the essence with your AAA affiliates uh, in terms of getting guys up, sent up and down as quickly as possible. And uh, that's been a problem for the Mets uh, out, outside of the, the player development issues at Cashman Field, which is very low on the player development amenities. Um, you know, they got to get players, in, you know, to New York City from Vegas on a moment's notice, and that can be tough too, which, uh, you know, brings us then to the fact that these are two very overlapping big news stories But, you know, not totally connected, really, in that the New York Mets will be leaving Las Vegas and going to Syracuse because they're buying the Syracuse Chiefs. And, uh, you know, it's kind of bad timing for the, net, the Mets that they're leaving Las Vegas at the same time that Vegas is getting a ballpark in which it would be much better for them to compete in. But they are all about proximity with this. If they have their triple A team at Syracuse, they've got double A in Binghamton and of course major leagues in New York City. So now you have your three level highest levels of play in close proximity to one another, which is obviously a huge benefit. And the Mets, ever since they uh, left Norfolk at the end of, I believe, t- 2006, uh, have really struggled with solidifying uh, a relationship Relationship with a triple a AAA team they want to be with um, having gone from uh, you know Norfolk for for decades to New Orleans which was not a good fit to Buffalo and then they eventually lost that and then had to go to Vegas so now they're controlling their own destiny by having a team they own and operate in the International League close by and uh, thus ends uh, over 50 years of community uh, you know community ownership Of the Syracuse Chiefs, uh, since 1961, I believe. Um, But that franchise has been through a lot of turmoil, uh, was losing a lot of money for a lot of years. They've righted the ship in recent years, you know, now to where they're eking out a small profit. But there's been a lot of concerns about the long-term viability of the Chiefs under their, uh, you know, uh, community ownership model. And, you know, having tons of shareholders uh, via a system that goes back to the 60s. And so now with the Mets owning and operating that franchise, uh, I think that makes uh, p- baseball fans in Syracuse rest a lot easier thinking, wow, there's a lot more uh, long-term viability and having the Mets here owning and operating uh, the franchise. So it's a good move for both Syracuse, you know, then the Chiefs, as well as the Mets, who now finally won't be stuck with the Vegases of the world and actually have um, – you know, a AAA affiliate that's close by and that they can have a lot of say in the input of how it's run because they literally own it.
0: The dominoes never stop falling, and that uh, actually brings us to a a similar story. The Carolina Mudcats, also purchased by a major league affiliate. That's one story, uh, not an affiliation change uh, in terms of the parent club, but a a different structure for the Mudcats and their relationship with the Milwaukee Brewers, and also a change in affiliation in the Appalachian League in Greenville. The Astros are out. The Reds are in. Ben, tell us the latest on those situations. Sam and I talked about those a little bit, but give us kind of the breakdown from your point of view.
2: Yeah, I mean uh, the appy, you know, starting with Greenville and the Appalachian League, that's a unique league because every team in the Appalachian League, you know, as you could maybe indicate from their names, which they all have the parent club names, every team in that rookie level league is owned by the parent club. Um, so they are not beholden to the traditional, you know, every two or four year player development contracts that are subject to renewal. It's basically the team own the major league team owns that team uh, until they don't, until they don't want an appy league team. So this kind of seemed to come out of nowhere when the season ended and Greenville or the Astros organization said, we don't want an Apple League team anymore. And, um, you know, I I immediately thought back to 10 years ago, uh, meaning, one, I've been doing this too long, but two, two, 10 years ago, uh, Pulaski – didn't have an affiliate for the 2007 season and the league went to nine teams and played a really awkward season with a lot of off days and doubleheaders to make up for the fact that there was an odd number of teams in the league. So when Greenville pulled out or when the Astros pulled out of Greenville I thought oh here we go again except not because the Greenville uh, Stadium, Pioneer Park is the newest one in the league uh, it's owned by Tusculum, Univers- or college, Tusculum College, it's on that campus it's a very nice ballpark and it's a pretty desirable place for your rookie level affiliate to play. Uh, what 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 I was not expecting was the Cincinnati Reds to be the team that has filled the void in Greenville after the um, Astros left because the Reds already have a rookie level affiliate in the Pioneer League and there are no uh, major league organizations that have both a Pioneer League and Appalachian League team. You know, some don't have any in either of those two leagues, and some have one in one or the other. Um, So the rookie levels are a little wilder in terms of the discretion of the teams, uh, you know, how many teams they have and in what leagues they're in. And I think the Astros' reasoning was to – You know, they pulled out of the Appy. They're not in the Pioneer. Uh, I think their reasoning was to more consolidate it on the uh, Gulf Coast League level and stay in the complexes. Um, But the Cincinnati Reds stepped up on the other direction saying, hey, we're going to have a Pioneer League team, uh, the Billings Mustangs, and also on the same level of play in a different league. Now we're going to be in Greenville. They're going to be the Greenville Reds. So, uh, you know, the Appy League, staying strong, 10 teams, and I'm glad to see that. And then, uh, you know, as you guys mentioned in, in Carolina, the Mudcats, Uh, playing in Zebulon, North Carolina. Um, The Brewers bought the team, and that had been rumored for quite a long time. And it's kind of the same, uh, you know, the Brewers were in Brevard County for a while with their Class A advanced affiliate. And I think they just want to get to a place where, again, you know, they don't want to end up back in the Cal League or, you know, in in a... Last man standing scenario. So there are these, uh, you know, increasingly that's what you're seeing teams do is buy the affiliate and then you control it So, you know, they said hey, we like it here in Carolina and uh, the only way to ensure that we can stay here and Is is to own it. So now we have the Carolina Mudcats uh, owned by the Milwaukee Brewers
1: And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting with the whole Greenville situation is the official like release from minor league baseball commissioner Pat O'Connor or president, that was sent, president. President, excuse me, that was sent uh, to Pat O'Connor, anyways, um, says that they officially had to contract the Greenville <laughs> yeah. Astros and that the home territory of the club, which is Green County, Tennessee, reverted back to the league. Okay, so now there's, there's no team there. It's fine. The next paragraph is, in order to have an even number of teams for the 2018 season, the Appy League subsequently chose to expand by one club, Cincinnati Reds have been selected to operate the expansion club. The new club has been granted the following home territory, which is Green County, Tennessee. <laughs> so it
2: just—it's
1: this whole big like.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know the, the legal for, maneuver maneuvering behind that. We saw the same thing when uh, you know two California League teams essentially moved to the Carolina League, but it was the same language. The, Car- the California League retracted by two teams. And then the Carolina League team in a related but technically not, uh, you know, expanded. So I um, that's the language they use. And um, I'm not exactly sure uh, why it's done that way. But, yeah, the Appy League momentarily said, oh, we're contracting. We're only nine teams. And then the Reds were interested in Greenville. And they said, guess what? We decided to expand the league
1: <laughs> in the same in the place, place, place that, that place. it was
2: before. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not to get lost in all that, but uh, I did see that phrasing as well. Uh, and and we want to pivot to,
1: you had a book review out this year, this uh, week, um, which was kind of fun. I always like when you get to do these, um, this one was on lefty O'Doul, which the, uh, book is called lefty O'Doul baseball's forgotten ambassador, which automatically ropes you in. But this obviously has a minor league angle in the fact that he was kind of a PCL legend. Um, what did you kind of learn from this book? What were your takeaways from it?
2: Hey, well, it's good to be doing Yeah, the occasional book review now that we've hit the off season. That's something I try to do when applicable. Um, so the author of this book, uh, Dennis Snelling, wrote about five years ago a history of the Pacific Coast League. Um, I think it was called The, the Greatest Minor League. Um, and, you know, the Pacific Coast League has a really interesting history because it dates back to 1903. And until the expansion of baseball out west in 1958, you know, it was essentially kind of sort of a third major league um, because it was representing you know some very large markets that did not yet have major league baseball. And in reading uh, Dennis Snelling's book about the PCL, um, there was a lot of lefty old duel in there. And I think before I read that book, I was kind of like, oh, I know the name, but I don't know much about him. But he's an interesting character. Uh, for sure, a San Francisco native, beloved in San Francisco. In fact, the bar that he opened actually just closed about a year ago. Uh, you know, named Lefty O'Doul's, and an iconic spot. But you know, he started in the PCL, but he played in the majors for a while. Started as a pitcher, then switched to being an outfielder. Hit 398 for the 1929 Phillies. Um, but his career, in terms of going back between MLB and uh, PCL. Between being a pitcher and a hitter, you know, you don't look at his overall stats and think, like, what an all-time great. But when you think about the fact that he did it at different positions in different leagues and at the same time went on to manage in the PCL for years and to now say, you know, to go to the book specifically that Snelling wrote, you know, Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador, that title is a reference to the fact that, you know, he visited uh, Japan on a barnstorming tour, uh, I believe initially in 1931 – and then through the rest of his life over the course of decades was a huge advocate of you know being essentially a a diplomat and uh, bringing baseball to japan and uh, forging relations between those two countries um with uh, a shared love of baseball and obviously um A big part of that is World War II was in the middle of this time period, and Lefty O'Doul in 1949 was a big part of a trip back to Japan in the wake of World War II that really did a lot to help re-solidify the country's relationships. So you look at Lefty as a San Francisco icon a uh, player, an outfielder, a pitcher, a hitter, a hitting coach. He loved to talk about hitting. You know, he he was an early influence on Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, um, and again, a baseball ambassador, and really a gregarious, lovable guy, a guy who had a love for humanity. So um, there's a whole book about him if you'd like to read it, and I have a short review of it on uh, MILB.com. But um, this is a really quality book um, in the realm of baseball books, Uh, Dennis Snelling's lefty O'Duel, baseball's forgotten ambassador so now that we're hitting the off season, i know the playoffs are still going on in mlb but hey we're the minors that's the offseason uh looking for books to read uh, definitely a minor league angle with this one in the pacific coast league lefty O'Doul, baseball's forgotten ambassador by dennis snelling books check them out
0: check them out they're always good he's benjamin hill he's always good he's at ben's biz on twitter the blog is Ben'sBiz.MLBlogs.com. what do you got coming up on the site and the blog
2: Hey, on the blog uh, today, as I'm speaking, Wednesday, I put my penultimate uh, on-the-road post up there. Still getting uh, some in-season content out there, uh, dealing with the Bowie's Creek Astros, and I have my last post written, which will be about my designated eater and the food at Bowie's Creek, and that'll come out this week. And um, so they've been trickling out, but um, please, keep reading the blog. These uh, road trip sagas keep going, and they're actually just about to end. But uh, read the blog, get in touch with me with feedback about anything. Um, I like to hear from everyone, especially during this uh, slow time of year in which I forget that anyone knows who I am or likes me, and I'm very sensitive. So Until uh, the winter meetings. That's until great. the winter meetings. Then I'm the greatest of all time. You
1: any corner without Ben getting a shout-out from somebody.
2: Right, right. But I'm very fragile, and I forget that when I'm here in New York and alone and cold and no one knows who I am. So uh, Twitter at Ben's Biz. <laughs> get in touch. And if you have any off-season suggestions just about fun ways to do this material and uh, you know things you'd like to see, get in touch. I'm a man of the people. Do it.
0: He doesn't – he's not lying to you. uh, You can contribute to all kinds of good offseason stuff from Benjamin Hill, who, again, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz. And, uh, Ben, we'll talk to you next week.
2: You will. Wrapping
0: up this week's edition of the show before the show podcast, episode number 131, nearly in the books. Um, Before we get out of here, though, we want to encourage you – Yes, you listening. Um, get in touch. We're into the offseason now. So we have a lot more leeway as to our topics, as to things we can really go deep on and get in depth on, um, whether it's discussions about, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier of what exactly the setup of the AFL is, um, all that type of stuff. If you have a question, you have a prospect you want to know more about, you have something in the minor leagues that you want to know more about, the way affiliations work, promotions, guys who get reassigned, what it means to be on the 40 man roster, all that type of stuff. If you've got questions, get in touch podcast at milb.com and uh we'll do our best to answer them here on the show um you know depending on however many we get over the off season we could dive you know deep into a mailbag type episode as we uh we get into the the months of winter which i am trying very hard to not think about so that's why we need questions about summer um but yeah we always love that we love hearing from people and it's that's one of the funnest things we get to do is kind of explain the little intricacies of stuff that you don't really think about. About when you're on the inside of it and then realize like oh yeah that is kind of confusing if you don't work in minor league baseball
1: yeah and we have a lot of that coming up between you know the rule five draft and the september or not september the uh 40 man addition deadline in terms of protecting from the rule five and all that kind of stuff there there's a lot of explaining that we'll still be doing over the off season but it's helpful to know exactly what you guys want to explain um just so we're not repeating ourselves or, or talking about things you guys already know um, we, we do have some some interesting ideas coming up. Uh, I, I think either last year or a couple of years ago, we did an AFL mock draft. We kind of filled out our, how our own fall yeah. league rosters would look. We'll do one of those coming up in a couple of weeks, um, you know, let the guys play a little bit first, uh, see how stocks are going and all that kind of stuff. But we have that idea. I was throwing around the idea earlier in the office of just kind of, well, maybe just one level, so let's say AAA, just blowing it up and then individually picking player development contracts and who should go where and the intricacies of that and having a discussion about that. Um, but anything, any other creative ideas you guys want us to do, you know, we do have more flexibility. Um, this is not, we're not throwing it out there because we're at, fresh out of ideas. We certainly have tons to talk about. Um, the well never goes dry in my early baseball, but we want to make this a podcast for you. Uh, we want to do, you know, stuff that you guys want us to do, and all that kind of stuff. So the only way we can find out is if you email us again, podcast at milb.com, or tweet at us, you know, at Tyler Mon, at Sam Dykstra, milb, at Ben's Biz, what have you, uh, or even the at milb one. We usually, you know, those tweets will find our, our their their way to us at some point. Um, so yeah, reach out. Let us, let us make a podcast for you. That nothing would make us happier.
0: Yeah. And even if it's, you know, just weird questions about, like, oh, hey, what's your favorite uh, logo and uniform combination of all time in minor league baseball? Uh, maybe, it's <laughs> maybe it's the Casper Ghosts. Maybe it's the Casper Ghosts. Who knows? Maybe that's an answer that one of us would give. I don't know. Uh, but get in touch, whatever you want to know. Podcast at MILB.com. He is at Sam Dykstra, MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.